some of you may remember that um, I spoke on Psalm 8 earlier this year. Um, well, I want to av- actually have a look at it again because, you see, this simple uh, yet profound poem reminds us of an amazing truth that we need to hear tonight and particularly in this season that we're going through in our church life. For it says that our astonishingly big God knows and cares intimately for each and every one of us. That's the question that David is grappling with in this psalm. As he looks up at the stars in the sky and he he recognises that all that he sees above him is just that work of God's fingers, he asks this question, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Who are we is the question that he's asking. Or more importantly, who are we to the God of this vast universe? And these are the basic questions of human existence that we all at some stage in our lives ask. Kelly Capick, uh, in his book, You're Only Human, and I would recommend reading it, comes at this question in a slightly different way. He asks, does God love you? And if I was to ask that question, the answer would be, of course, he does. We know, don't we? His son died for us on the cross. You know, John 3.16. But then Kelly asks a different question. He says, Does God like you? And that is a completely different question. Because although like and love often go hand in hand, they are completely different experiences. According to the psychologists, love is a drive. It's driven by a different part of our brains. It's our capacity to feel for, desire and connect with another person. But like, like is about appreciation. It's about appreciation for something or for someone based on who they are and the attributes that they possess. God loves us. There's no doubt about that. But does he like us? Does he like us individually? Does he delight in you? Does he want to spend time with me? Is he interested in us individually as people? Or is he only interested in us as humanity? Ultimately, does God care for you and for me? This is what David ponders in Psalm 8. So as we open it up, why don't we just bow our heads in prayer and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for your word and we thank you that we can gather together tonight to hear it. And so we ask, Father, that you would still our hearts and still our minds and all that would get in the way of listening. And would you help us to listen? Would you speak to us through your word, by your spirit, and teach us about who you are? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So as we get into the psalm, the psalm opens with David addressing God in a very intimate way. He says, Lord, our Lord. Now, anybody who's read the Old Testament and sees the English there, they see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which I don't think I put up there. But anyway, that is what it is. And it's the English translator's way of saying, not Lord, but Yahweh, God's personal name. So as David considers all the stars and all of God's glory, he is reminded first of the awesome God who is close to him, a God who he knows by his personal name, Yahweh, my God and King. But it's not just him who knows him. He says the whole world knows him as well. How majestic is all your name in all the earth? You see, God's name represents who he is. It represents what he has done. It is him in all his glory. Your name is visible in all its splendour and in all its power throughout the earth. It is seen in the glory, he says, of the heavens he has created. You have set your glory in the heavens, the heavens that he's looking at. Now, there's many places where the Bible speaks of of God's glory being visible in in the things around us, in the creation that he has made. Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. God's glory is everywhere. Not just in the infinite galaxy, but in the intense beauty of what we see in creation, in the intricate complexity of life that we see around us, even indeed in in ourselves. All of it, from the far-flung galaxies and stars to the tiny flowers in the garden, bear the fingerprints of God and declare his glory. Yet God's power, says David, is not just in what he displays, it's in what he does. For through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Babbling children to silence the foes and the avenger. And the, uh, avenger. Now, this isn't the easiest of passages to understand, Um, But the intent is clear. For when we look around us in the world, how do we see people showing their power and strength? It's through their strength and might, isn't it? If you hit me, I'm not just going to hit you back. I'm going to bring my mates. And just as an encore, we're going to trash your house as well. Or you look at the biggest scene. You know, one country attacks another, what do they do? They get bigger guns, they get bigger bombs, they get bigger armies and they attack back. In fact, they say that if we do nothing, it's a sign of weakness. Isn't that the way the world thinks? Isn't that what we see in the world? But God is so powerful that he uses the weak things the insignificant things in the world to silence 
the strong opposition against him. Whether it's the children who run along beside him as he comes into Jerusalem crying, Hosanna, son of David. Or the foolishness of him, a humble king, dying on a cross. Or or, or whether it's the insignificance of our meetings week by week as far as the world sees it. Or the seeming weakness of of the gospel message or the impotence of our prayers. Whatever it is that is weak, whoever it is that is weak, God works through those weaknesses to display his majesty and his power and silences his foes. Do you see it? David did. And his response was an awed worship of the God of the universe. And so as he contemplates these things, he then turns to his question. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Now you can imagine David, can't you, king of his army, out on bivouac, out in the darkness when there's no lights. Have you ever been in that situation where it's so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face and looked up in the sky? The Milky Way is milky because of the stars. And he's looking up and he's thinking, if you are so great as to make all this, then who are we in the scheme of things? And friends, that is actually quite a profound question. Have you ever wondered why God has made the universe so big? I mean, if it's just a light show for us to just show us the seasons and to show us how glorious he is, how big he is, then maybe, you know, 10 light years across, maybe 100 light years across, do you think that would be big enough? God's universe is huge beyond our imagining. At last estimates, they reckon it's 93 billion light years. That's B billion light years across. And it contains 100 to 200 billion galaxies, each which contain billions of stars. That's big. That's mind-blowing. Why is it that big? Because our God is bigger. It needs to be that big to display the glory of God. It blows our minds and it's supposed to. How could such a God be mindful of us, let alone care for us? Weak, insignificant, dirt-made people on a little planet in the lost corner of the galaxy. Yet, as David thinks about this, he remembers what Moses wrote in in, uh, Genesis. And he says, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. We have been created from the dust of the earth and yet we have been given a place of honour in the universe. We have been given glory that no other creature that God has made has been given we have been given the honour to bear his image. God, whose majesty is above and beyond all that we can see, 
has created us and put that same splendour and honour on us like a crown. Small, fragile, insignificant humanity. He wants to walk with us. He delights in us. We are special to him. But there's more. He has given us dominion over all the earth. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. We have been created to rule over all that God has created. That's our purpose, to rule under God over all he has created, to tend and to care for it. And these are the wonderful, amazing, important truths about humanity that are found in this psalm. God has made us for himself. God has made us glorious. God has made us for a high and worthy purpose. David can hardly believe it. Do you? You see, our world denies these truths. On one hand, we find people who say, we make ourselves. We determine our destiny. My glory is in what I have, in what I achieve, in what I do. Or we, even worse, I'm nothing. I'm not important. I'm worthless. But the reality is this, that when these truths are denied or neglected, we become less than what God created us to be. Far from being insignificant and unloved by the God of the universe, we are valuable to him, crowned with glory and given a special place over creation. And friends, there is only one way to respond to that, and that is to fall on our knees before God and to praise him. And so David finishes this psalm with, O Yahweh, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's an amazing psalm, isn't it? Simple, profound. But we have a problem. Do you see the glory that God has given us? Look around. Do we have dominion over creation? Do we see humanity walking with God and fulfilling its destiny? No. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews, the second passage that we looked at, concludes too. In the passage that was read, the writer of the Hebrews is using Psalm 8 to argue for the very real humanity of Jesus. He quotes Psalm 8 and then says, in putting everything under them, that is everything under humanity, God left nothing that was not subject to them. What he's doing is he's just drawing a conclusion. If God has put everything under us, then there's nothing that's not subject to us. And if you think about it, we have done some pretty incredible things, haven't we? 
Think about all the wonders of modern science, of engineering and culture that we take for granted. We've come a long way and we've done some incredible things to tame this world and make life pleasant. And yet we're still at its mercy. And that's what the writer says next. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. You see, no sooner do we solve a problem than another one starts and it's bigger. We cannot predict or control what nature does. Just have a look what's happened in Hawaii. And what we do touch more often than not gets broken or exploited along the way and we ignore God and we visit hatred and violence on each other. Isn't that the way of the world? And it's all because everything we do is tainted, tainted by selfishness and sin. Kelly Capick says, makes this observation. He says, all of us bounce between the illusion that we are in control and the world's demonstration that we are not. You see, when Adam and Eve fell, when they rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3, the earth was cursed and humanity became subject to sickness and death. Rather than ruling over creation, we are subject to it. Rather than tending and caring for it, we pillage and destroy. Rather than live in harmony with God, well, we are in constant conflict, aren't we? We have fallen a long way from the high position that God created us for and intended for us. And this is the very real and deep pain that we feel and the dilemma that we are in, a pain that has come close to us in these last few weeks. But, says the writer, we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour. You see, the writer says God's solution to our dilemma was not to just snuff us out and start again. God's dilemma was to become one of us, God's answer. Jesus, God the Son, became for a little while lower than the angels. He became truly and fully human. It was plain enough to the people who walked and talked and heard and shared their lives with him. No one questioned whether Jesus was a human or not. He was born, he grew up, he grew tired, he slept, he became physically weak, he got thirsty, he got hungry, he died, he marvelled, he was troubled, he experienced grief, he wept. He was, as the writer says, like us in every respect, except for sin. And it's because he suffered death that he is now honoured. Because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he may taste, taste death for everyone. He died for us in our place. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. He rose again and is now seated in heaven, victorious, ruling over everything that God has created. He is the fulfilment of Psalm 8. Humanity is God intended us to be. You know he rose physically, 
He rose and humanity is with him in heaven, in uh, the Godhead. And so the writer makes an amazing statement. He says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I just want you to stop and think about that. Jesus, the God of the universe, the God who flung the stars into space, is not ashamed of you or me. Just as we are, he persists with us, teaching, encouraging and making us more like him. Humanity as God created us to be, living in and for him in every way. Do you believe that God fiercely delights in you? The three-person God is a personal God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and they share personal, perfect fellowship with each other. They don't need us. They don't benefit from being in communion with us. And yet, we are made alive in Christ because of their great love for us. We people, humanity, are made for personal communion with a personal God. Does that not blow your mind and fill your heart? They not only love you, They like you and they dwell with you. And that is their intent for all of eternity. And if you come to Jesus in faith, you are seated with him now in heaven. Hidden, but in reality, in heaven. In him we become like him. Humanity as God always wanted us to be. That is our destiny. In Christ, that is who we are. And so we come back to the question, who am I? Who are you? We are a precious child of God, cherished and much loved. God cares about you more than you can possibly imagine. What is my purpose? Well, in Christ, our purpose is to become like him in every way and fulfil Psalm 8, following our big brother. Now, there are many things that can flow out of this, and um, really we don't have a lot of time left. And you could actually argue that the whole of the New Testament is actually there to unpack this for us and what that means. But I want to leave you with four things. Firstly, the only way, the only way to respond to this is like David, with praise and thanksgiving. So let me encourage you to start each day and finish each day and continue each day in thankful praise to God. For who you are and who I am is all due to him, his love and his boundless grace. And if God loves you, then love yourself. For you are precious to God, you just as you are. Do not listen to the world and what the world says is the perfect you. 
God has already spoken. You are the perfect you in Christ. You are fearfully and wonderfully made and God does not make mistakes. So love yourself. And if God does not make mistakes, then love others. For not only you were precious to God, but all people are precious to God. You are no better, they are no better. You are no worse, they are no worse. Jesus died for you, he died for them. He's not ashamed to call you brother and sister. He's not ashamed to call them brother and sister. So love them as well in all that you do. And finally, hold on. For who you are in Jesus is hidden. The world doesn't see it. I don't see it. It's hidden. It will be revealed. When Jesus comes, it will be revealed. But in the meantime, we live in difficult, challenging and grief-filled times. And I'm afraid it appears to be getting worse. So hold on. Because we are not alone. God dwells with us by his spirit. And Jesus left us this great promise that he will be with us even to the end of the age. Our big brother walks beside us. So hold on. And then let me leave you with this encouragement and the challenge that the writer to the Hebrews leaves us in chapter 4. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us therefore approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen.